right. Well, while you are enjoying the special gift and continuing to enjoy the yummy food, um, I'm going to introduce Rebecca Riggs. Becca. Becca Riggs. Becca Riggs. <laughs> who is going to be our, our singer for this afternoon. And she is a lovely singer, pursu actually pursuing a career in music. So you are in for a wonderful, wonderful treat today. Um, she is the niece of Nina and Robin Riggs. And she has a very lovely voice. So please settle down all of your excitement for this wonderful entertainment. That blue-eyed boy from Tennessee was trouble Right from the beginning Never saw it coming till it was too late to run Run away from the love he was laying down at her feet It was everything she never wanted to see That blue-eyed boy from Tennessee made her walls crumble Gotta love God's giftings. It's so amazing. Um, speaking of God's giftings, I have the pleasure of introducing our speaker. Um, her name is Janet Mitchell, and she is a, such a beautiful example of giving God glory with your life and how he can take the vast trials in our life and make them 
beautiful. Um, this woman is going to share with us, Miss Janet is going to share with us just some pieces about her life um, during our time that are going to make you laugh, possibly make you cry, but uh, fill you up with God's glory and grace. And I am just so excited to hear her. In the back of the room, she has some materials there that afterwards, if you are interested, you can purchase. She is a published author. Um, she has several different amazing tools out there that will bless your home. Some of the books that she uh, has that she sells, actually all of the proceeds go towards um, speaking fees for her to be able to go and speak at churches and for groups who can't afford to have speakers. And I just think that that is such a wonderful and amazing blessing. So I want you to please take time on your way out to go back and visit her table back there. But please help me welcome Janet Mitchell. I am thrilled to be here. Isn't this a wonderful tea party? I think we should give an applause to everybody who, who participated. A couple years ago, a, a members from a church called me and they said, Janet, can you come to our church and speak? And I thought, well, that sounds exciting, doesn't it? I said, well, what would you like me to speak on? And the lady said, well, we would like you to talk about love. And I thought, oh my goodness, love? Love? Well, it took me about five minutes before I realized that I, Janet Lynn Mitchell, am an expert on love. Do you want to know why? Because you realize, I realize that, that I do love. I realize that other people love me, and I realize that I am in love. You know what I mean? So I was an expert. I then went out and I said to the church, yes, I will come. And then I gathered all kinds of books and started reading profound things about love that I could go share with these women. After reading all the profound books, I discovered just a couple things. I discovered that love is a verb. It's not a noun. I also then put the books away because I discovered something great. In my life, everything I have learned about love I have learned from other people. And I think by the end of this talk, you'll be able to think on your life and think, I've learned some things about love through the lives of other people as well. Now, how many are in this room are animal lovers? I have tried to be an animal lover. Jewel, my daughter's dog, who has lived with us for the last eight years, um, has taught me a lot about um, animal loving because you see, I really up until that point, um, I don't like things creeping, crawling, slithering, sliding, sleeping with me. <laughs> Jewel, however, is a beagle and she believes different. <laughs> now my daughter is coming home from her two-week honeymoon tomorrow and I want you to know, last night, I slept with Jewel Mitchell, the beagle. <laughs> Why? Because I wanted to be, get enough sleep to be able to come to speak today because Jewel whines and cries all night. But you see, Jewel has taught me a lot about love. She's taught me that love comes with responsibility. Think about your relationships. Love comes with responsibility. Jewel has taught me that because I realize that Jewel needs to eat and she's hungry even when the kids have forgotten to feed her. I've also learned that with caring for Jewel, 
that one rises to the occasion to do what she needs to do, even when she would rather not. Now, you see, Jewel has been dognapped twice. Have anyone else in this room, has any of your dogs been dognapped? Twice. If you would call my phone, you would probably hear, Hi, this is the home of Janet Lynn Mitchell, the famous author and pet detective, because I have found Jewel Mitchell twice. Well, a couple years ago, Jewel was missing, and it was quite tragic. My daughter's a diabetic, and every, you know, when she's grieving the loss of this dog, her sugars are just everywhere. And I thought, you know, I really need to help find Jewel, even though if someone would come and say to me, we will take Jewel and we will give her this wonderful home, I would say, oh, really? Can we do it tonight? <laughs> Jewel was missing. We looked everywhere. I printed up 300 posters. We had them big, we had them little. I was handing out flyers to the elementary school and, and every afternoon I would pick up my niece, Cheyenne, and I would drive her through McDonald's. She would get an ice cream sundae and we would start out looking for Jewel while the, my older kids were in their own cars looking for Jewel. We had the windows down. Cheyenne has her feet up on the, um, the hood there or whatever you call it. And, there you are, dashboard, and, and we're screaming, Jewel! She then looks at me with chocolate all over her face, and she says to me something very interesting. She says, Aunt Janet, do you think that Jewel knows we're looking for her? And I thought, that dumb dog. <laughs> Jewel doesn't know anything. She thinks she's on a vacation. She has no idea, and I wanted to tell Cheyenne all these things about Jewel, and then I didn't. But I said something to her that I thought was so, so true. I said, you know, Cheyenne, love is kind of like that. Because when we love someone or something, you, we do things for that person or for that animal, even when the person has no idea or will ever have an idea that we're looking for her. Cheyenne then concluded she kind of liked to love. And she wanted to love that way. It was just a day later that we got the lead. Two police cars later, our dog was in my arms and I was taking Jewel back to Jenna Marie. Jewel. She gets to move this week with Jenna because she just got married. <laughs> now, my grandparents have taught me a lot about love. How many in here are grandmas? Okay. My two grandmas taught me so much about love. I am who I am today because of these two women, partially because of these two women. Now, when I was a little girl, one of my grandmas would sit and talk to me, and I would actually talk to her, and she would have not a clue what I was saying. But there's video of her going, uh-huh, oh, yes, oh, yes. I can't even understand what I was saying. <laughs> my grandma. My other grandma, when, we, when I was growing up, my church had Sunday school lessons, and we had little books, and, and we would fill it out during the week. We would look up the study, and my grandma went out and bought the same book time after time. And if I couldn't meet my grandma so we could do the lesson in the week together, I would call on the phone, and we would do the lessons, and I would say, Grandma, are you sure? Well, Grandma, this is what I think. And then my grandma would let me process just recently, I went through the drawer that I have in my bedroom of all the special cards that have been given me. And I do it a couple times a year, actually. But I found cards from my grandmas. 
One grandma always stuck a piece of gum in it, and you know that gum is really hard now. And my other grandma, she would sit and embroider little flowers on the cards that she would send me. My grandmas, they listened to my dreams. They laughed at my jokes. They challenged me. They told me I could. They told me God had created me for something good, something big, something wonderful. If you're a grandma, don't underestimate the power of your words and your love because I am partially who I am because of two women. My dad has taught me a lot about love, a lot about love. This is a great man. I'm going to share some stories with you today about my dad. And you know what I realize? I realize that there are some people in this room that haven't had the experience that I have, that haven't had the experience of being loved by someone who is um, ever loving, ever kind, ever generous. But my dad has. And, you know, I think when God was creating me, he said, she needs that man. She needs that man. Well, let me tell you just a little about my dad. You see, well, first of all, Psalms 103, 13. It talks about how God is the, the God, the father of the fatherless. Do you know that just as I am the apple of my father's eyes, that you are the apple of God's eyes, and that he is your father, and that he knows your name, and that he, he loves you, that he created you, he formed you, he knows what your future is going to be, and he says it's going to be good. My dad, I'm the apple of his eye. When I was in third grade, I decided I wanted to be in the school band. How many of you have been in the school band? Third, fourth grade was pretty tragic, wasn't it? It was really quite difficult. I decided I wanted to play the flute, and that was wonderful. And I got the flute, and I could toot-toot-toot it, and I did this real well, didn't know what I was doing. But I had about 20 people, 20 students in the band. And the, the people would sit, the students would sit in kind of a horseshoe. And every week, we would have to play the portion that we learned, and the person who played it the very best got to sit in the front seat. And then the person who did almost the very best was there, and we went so-and-so, and I always was at the other end. <laughs> and I was very upset about it. I would practice playing the flute in the mirror. I would practice it everywhere I could. And finally, at the dinner table one night, I told my parents I was not doing well in flute, and I thought I should probably quit because it was quite embarrassing being at the other end week after week. My dad said he was going to help me. It would have been much easier for him to have said to me, Janet, let's just quit the flute, honey. Maybe you're called to do something different. But no, he said, I'm going to help you. And I said, Daddy, how are you going to help me? And he said, you'll see. And so then I did see. A couple nights later, my dad asked me where my flute was. I gave it to him. I thought we were going to practice together. And he said, I'll see you in a little bit. And he walked out the door with my flute. Where was he going? He was going to flute lessons. Now, my dad joined an adult little band, I guess, and week after week he had to go play his little portion on the flute and they would choose the first seat, the second seat, the third seat. My dad one night at dinner said, I'm having trouble with the flute. I said, Daddy, what's wrong? The flute is, I could show you how to put it together. And he says, no, honey, I'm in the last seat. I said, oh, I understand, Daddy. I get it. For an entire year, my dad took flute lessons. 
After that year, we decided that we had a different calling on our lives. <laughs> now, my dad, he's a most incredible man. Because, you know, one thing my dad will say to me is, Janet Lynn, you think outside the box. And I thought, doesn't everybody? No, not everybody. I want to share another story with you that will give you a glimpse of how my dad loves me. And, and you know what? I believe this is how God loves me. Because God loves me even greater and bigger and better and, and more deeply than my dad ever has the ability to. My dad. This is taken from the chicken soup with a father-daughter soul. I wish I could have seen his face when I called him. How many of you call your dads? I wish I could have seen his face. Because, you see, I had a problem, and I needed to talk to him about it. And I said, um, Dad? He said, Janet. Yeah, Dad, Dad, um, my garage door broke. And he said, well, what do you need me to do? Do you need me to, to bring you a spring? And I said, no, no, Dad, I, I don't need you to bring a spring. I need you to come over, Dad. He said, now? I said, yeah, Dad. And he said, well, what did you do, Janet? And I said, well, I had places to go. I had people to see, Dad. And I really was going to the mall. And, and I thought, I can't get out of my garage door. And so I thought, well, you know what? I can do this. I can take my extended van and turn it and go out the other garage door. Don't you think that's a fabulous idea? For a moment, my dad was silent. Because, you see, I could just see he was trying to figure out what I needed. Because I'm telling him my garage door is broke, and then I don't need a spring. I just need him to come over. And, and I sat while he was silent and thought about the many years that I've called my dad when I've needed him. So then he says to me, well, Janet, I really need to know what you need. And I said, Dad, I need you to come over because my van is stuck. And he said, stuck? Yeah, Dad, my van is stuck in my garage. Janet, explain this to me. And I said, well, Dad, I was trying to. I, I was just trying to back up a little bit, go forward, and I was trying to turn my, my car around, and now my extended van, he knew that, it was an extended van, is totally sideways in my garage, and I need you to come help me get it out before my husband comes home. <laughs> it was just minutes before my dad was standing in my garage looking at my van. And he said, you are stuck. And I said, well, I didn't tell you the, the lie. I'm stuck, Daddy, and I really need some help. And he said, how long have you been doing this? And I said, longer than you want to know. <laughs> he said, do you have much gas left? And I said, well, I little, and I know where the can is if we needed some. And, and I, but, but we don't have much time left before Marty comes home from work. So my dad got in my van, and as he inched forward, inched back, and started making a little bit of progress, I jumped up on, on the workbench. And I sat there watching a man who I have, since I was a little girl, been able to go to him, never fearing that he would get angry at me, never fearing that this man would be um, questioning, why in the world did you do that? Because he would just simply say, well, Janet, what do you think we should do now? How do we move forward? I have such respect for this man that I would never want to hurt him or I would never want to do something that, that would be necessarily against what, what his values are. 
This man has taught me that God loves me that way. In Chicken Soup, I write, Instantly, I flashed back to the many times my dad had come to my rescue, not questioning the how did you do it or the whys, but just focusing on the now and how we move forward. And you see, my dad believed in my dreams. He believed I was created for a special purpose. When I was little, the neighborhood kids couldn't quite figure it out. But my dad said to me, Janet, God is going to use you. He said to me, you are created for something wonderful, even if it's raising your, your children, even if it's being a part of our family. I pondered my dad's patience. I pondered his wisdom and his endless love for me. Today was no different. I called home when I needed to talk to someone, when I needed a dad. And many of us can call home to our Father God on a daily basis. And God doesn't say to you, why did you do that? No. He says, well, can I help you? He says, I know how to get vans out of the garage when you park them sideways. And does God think I might park a van that way? Well, he created me. He should know better. He knows that I might do something like that. My dad, my dad believes big, he loves me, and he believes in big dreams. You know, there was a time, though, that, that my dad's dreams needed to be his dreams because they couldn't be my dreams, and I'm going to tell you about that. When I was 16, I got news that I needed to have surgery on both of my legs. I thought, well, that's kind of inconvenient. It's my junior year of high school, and I, I need to finish that and then go on to a wonderful summer in my senior year, and then I'm going away to Point Loma College. I had it all planned out, and it didn't quite happen that way. I went in the hospital. I had surgery on my, on my right leg, and six weeks later, I went back to the hospital and had surgery on my left leg. And when I finally got to the point where I was going to... Um, learn how to walk on the parallel bars or to get back up and walking because I hadn't walked between those two time periods. I went and started walking and hanging on to the parallel bars and every time I stepped forward, my, my right knee would buckle beneath me. We were devastated. My parents were devastated when we heard the news that there had been an unsuccessful ending to my surgery. You see, there was a poor result. Have you had someone tell you there's a poor result to your, your medical care? And I thought, well, what's the poor result? I, I don't quite get it. And, and the doctor finally said to me was, Janet, the reason your, your, your knee is, is collapsing is because of the way God formed you in your mother's womb. It's the way you were created. And I thought, well, I get that. Um, you see, because I know Psalms 139. You read it? He's knit you together in your mother's womb. He's charted your days. He's designed you. He's created you. And I thought, well, who am I to argue with God? So I must just be like this for a reason. And, and so I, I went on and had three more surgeries in my senior year. Unsuccessful, unsuccessful, unsuccessful. Each time my family prayed, each time they hoped, each time we, we just had our thoughts so positive and we just knew that things were going to be okay and I watched as my desperate parents tried anything and everything to help me to be able to walk again. See, I believe everyone in this room deserves parents like I've had.
I believe that you, you not only deserve it, but, but I wish you had, had a parent who loved you like I've been loved. You see, even after I've been told by my doctors that, that there's nothing more we can do for you, there was not one doctor in California that would even see me at that point. Because the doctors just said, you simply need to help Janet understand that she's not going to walk. And you need to help her figure out what she's going to do with her life. And I got to thinking, well, that sounds good to me at this point. And something inside of my daddy's heart said no. You know what I know now? I believe it was the Holy Spirit saying no. There's something more. You see, my dad said he's going to look. He's going to do anything to find a doctor. Well, we didn't have the Internet back then, so he started making long-distance phone calls. This is like 1980. Trying to find a doctor who could help me. One day my dad came in and he said, Janet, um, I found a doctor. We're going to go visit him. And I said, well, where's the doctor? And he said, Georgia. And I'm thinking in my um, California-educated mind, where's Georgia? Is it in the middle of the United States or all the way to the other end? And, and, and my dad just said, honey, don't worry about it. I'll show you when we get there. Pack your suitcase. Well, with my suitcase packed and my parents' big dream, my dad and I boarded a plane and headed to Columbus, Georgia, 3,000 miles away from home. As I got on the plane, I listened to the engine. The roar of the engine matched my dad's determination to find me help. I sat there and I thought, well, would this doctor in Georgia know anything more than the doctors in California? How could he know more? Or would I, would I go there and find that there was a dream, or, 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 there was something wonderful at the end of my rainbow, or would I go there and find out that my parents' big dreams were just that? They were dreams. Once there, I met this famous orthopedic surgeon. His name was Dr. Jack Houston. I didn't know what to think of Dr. Jack Houston when I met him because he had a polka-dotted bow tie, a striped shirt, and a roadrunner belt, and he looked like a, a skinny Colonel Sanders. <laughs> he called me Sugar, and I thought, we have just met. I didn't quite understand, but see, Dr. Houston did something very different. He said, come on, Sugar, we're going to go x-ray that leg because I got there and I didn't have any medical records with me. The doctors here forgot to send them, and, and so... I tried to explain to him the surgeries I had had, and this man with his bare hands held my leg so it could be x-rayed in a special position. And then he said to me, well, Sugar, I think I might be able to fix you. I said, really? You might be able to fix you? So I had another surgery. That was surgery number eight. When I woke up from surgery number eight, it was quite a surprise because all of a sudden I saw my mom sitting there, and I knew she hadn't come with me. I found out it was a couple days later, and I had been sleeping for a long time, and I had a cast from my waist down, and I couldn't quite understand why my hip hurt so bad when it was my knee and my leg that had the trouble. My parents stayed in a hotel for a few weeks as I began to get blood and th those things that help you sit up, and I eventually came home in a cast from my waist down and was home for several months and then flew back and had other treatment. When in California, there was not one doctor who either saw me or my parents had called would take my case. There was one doctor in the South in a town I had never heard of who wore a bow tie and a striped shirt 
that said, Sugar, I think I can fix you. Now, I'm standing here today because of my mom and dad and the dream they had in their heart that said, you can't stop. And one doctor who said, we'll try. I think I can. Hmm. Surgery number eight, though, didn't quite do the job for me. And that was disappointing. I left Point Loma College again, and I, I went back to Georgia for a checkup. And, and I found out that I had to stay there, and I had to have more surgery because it was coming undone. And, and I thought, no, I can't do that. I can't. I have roommates back at school I need to get there for. And I ended up being in the hospital there for five months. And during that time, I not only had surgery number nine, but I had surgery number ten. And I went there with my sister who, who thought we were going on a vacation and she had to come home because she was in college. And so then I was there by myself and I told my parents not to come. At this time I was 19 years old and, and they had already taken off work for how many surgeries in the last three years. And I thought they can't do this again. But you know what? There was another, another part to that because it was not only they can't, it was I can't. It was I can't watch you watch me not be able to walk and work so hard. So I'll tell you what, I'll call you if I need you, but we'll talk every day. And they said that was great for a while, but they also said, hey, we just may show up, and that would be fine too. But I met three other girls there. We were all from different states, and we all really couldn't walk. There was one of us that used crutches, but we just decided that we were going to make the best of our, our five months in the hospital, and so we did. One night, we had gone down for pizza. One of the girls had a mom with her, so we all called her Miss Joy. And she, she was helping all of us. We went down to the lobby. We ordered pizza from the pizza man. He brought it. We ate the pizza. We had our wheelchair races. And, and then we decided it was time to go back to our rooms. So we all wheeled over to the elevator. And off the elevator walked this young man named Randy K. Whirl. I didn't know it at the time. But he looked at us and he said, What are you beautiful women doing in the hospital? And I thought, Oh, my well, all of a sudden, one of the girls started talking, and she said how she was a, an Olympian, and she was in track, and how she had fallen and hurt herself running the hurdles backwards. And I'm thinking, you did? You didn't do that. And then the next one took off, and she was a, a skater, and she was skating in, in the Alps, and she had gone through this village, and there was a, a, it was just disastrous, and that's why she was there. And I'm thinking, you did? You did not. Story after story, then came my turn. And the three girls looked at me, and Randy's looking at me with this big smile, and I said, um, my name is Janet Lynn Mitchell, um, the ice skater. Didn't you hear about my fall on the ice? And then Randy said something that was quite surprising. He, he said, no, I, I didn't hear about your fall on the ice, but I am going to my church right now. And I'm going to ask my whole church to pray for you girls in the hospital. And I thought, oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, Randy did exactly that. He went back to his church. He asked the pastor if he could make an announcement. He went down front, and he said, there are four famous young women up at that hospital. <laughs> and he said, I would like some college and career folks to go back with me because we need to do some visiting. Well, Randy also got it mixed up. He only remembered that I was from California, so he made the announcement that there was a Los Angeles Rams cheerleader up at that hospital. <laughs> It was quite a problem. The next day, I woke up and found out that I had to go to surgery that day because it had all come undone again. I said, no, I can't. 
You know, I think God knows when you're at that point where you just can't. So the doctor said, well, you, you know, Janet, you can't, but I can. So trust yourself to me and trust yourself to God. And I went in and he had me call my parents. He had me call my pastor. And then I said, I, I'm on a gurney, ready to go. And I said, no, I need to talk to my roommate, Terry. Terry was a 16-year-old girl from Florida who liked any boy that walked. At night, we would sit there and talk about all the boys she saw in the halls. And I was 19 and didn't quite get it. But I said, go get Terry. And so she, he went and got Terry. And, and Terry came down. And I had this profound conversation with a 16-year-old. I said, Terry, you make sure you wake me up at 5 o'clock today because I've got to tell my parents I'm okay. She said, Janet, you didn't wake up last time when you had surgery. I said, I don't care, Terry. You've got to wake me up. She agreed. The doctor thought we had had this profound conversation. She goes back. And I came out of surgery Went to my room, and at 5 o'clock, Terry's standing over my bed going, Janet, Janet Lynn, wake up, wake up. I finally opened my eyes, and there beside me was the young man we had met the night before by the elevator. And he not only came, but he brought a collection of young men from his college and career group to visit the Los Angeles Rams cheerleader. <laughs> well, I, I, I looked at... Terry, and I looked at these guys, and my first words were, I don't always look like this. <laughs> Again, I was in a cast from my waist down. I had IVs. My legs were up on pillows. I'm sure I looked terrible. And then I said, Terry, I'm going to throw up. And she handed me the little emesis basin. And these guys stood there while I threw up, talking about how they would need a bucket, not a basin, if they needed to throw up. The guys, they were our first visitors. They were our first visitors. And you know, they started coming back. And I started thinking, how in the world am I going to tell them I'm not a cheerleader? And then I thought, well, it really doesn't matter because I'm going back to California and nobody will ever know this and it will just be a part of my life that I can't even believe happened. We began to go to therapy each day and you know who began to show up? The guys. They would come as a group. They would come as one. At nighttime, we would all be in the three or four, four girls and I, or three girls and I would be in one of our rooms, and who would show up? The guys. And they were really funny. They talked Southern, and we were learning how to talk Southern, and sometimes they said things I had no idea what they were talking about, and they brought us different foods to sample, and finally, there was one guy there, his name was Marty, and he decided that I had been in the hospital over 50 days without going outside and he decided that it was best if he took me outside. The nurse happened to be in the room, and, and it came out that he wanted to take me outside. And she said, oh, like a date? <laughs> and he said, yes, I'd like to take Janet on a date. I am thinking, you do not want to take me on a date. How many of you would like to go on a date with the cast from your waist down, wearing maternity shorts or something that can go over it, a T-shirt, you can't really sit up, you haven't had your hair cut in I don't know how long, but I just didn't feel ladylike. Marty did what he had to. He went and asked the doctor permission to take me on a date. The doctor called my father, said, can Janet go on a date? The next thing I knew, without even asking me, I was going on a date. <laughs> I remember when Marty came. He came to pick me up. And he pushed me out of the hospital. And he ran me through the parking lot. And I remember, I'm thinking, this guy just thinks I saw snow. He thinks that this is so exciting for me. 
He lifted me up and put me in the car, his Camaro, and I was kind of laying back. And I'm thinking, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm counting the hours until I can get back. And, and, and the next thing I knew, how many of you want to have a police car pull you over on your first five minutes of a date? He, Marty got out of the car, talked to the police officer. I'm thinking, did he run a red light? What? And, and he, the wheelchair had knocked the brake lights out of his car. He gave him a fix-it ticket. We were on our way. We went to see the movie Grease. How many of you saw the opening of Grease? Okay. You, this, this is timing me now. We went to see the movie, and in, in this theater in Georgia, there were just two sides. There was one row in the middle that you could walk down and sit. And so Marty pushed me down, he parked my wheelchair, and he crawled over me to sit down. Pretty soon there was a problem. I felt wet. And I couldn't quite figure out what was happening. And so I, I, I finally said, Marty, I'm leaking. And, and he said to me, well, what do you do when you leak? I had never leaked before in my entire life. I wasn't sure where I was leaking from. I just could hear it. I knew that there was a problem. And he says, well, what are we going to do? And I said, well, you've got to at least take me to the bathroom. I, I can't take you to the bathroom. He pushed me up there, opened the bathroom doors, and shoved me inside. And I am thinking... Can I just stay here until this date is over? Can I call a nurse from the hospital to pick me up? What can I do? There was a little lady in the, the bathrooms. I wonder if she might have been an angel. And to me, she was an angel. You know why? She took her bare hands and came over to find out what was wrong. She moved things around, and she says, Honey, I think your catheter bag has, has come undone. She held it up, and I said, Well, evidently it has. I'll fix that. And she pushes it back together. She hides it back down there and washes her hands and blots me off with a paper towel and then blots me off again with a paper towel and then pushes my wheelchair underneath the hand blow dryer and says, sit here while honey will chat. What would I have done without her? What would I have done? On the way back to the hospital, well, when, I, when she felt I was dry, it wasn't when I just thought I was dry, when she said I had cleared... She opened the doors, pushed me out, and there was Marty standing with a big smile. Grease was just being let out. It was now time for us to go back to the hospital. He lifted me up, put me in the car. On the way back, we got stopped by a train. And, and in Georgia, the trains changed tracks, and we were now officially late to go back to the hospital. Not only was I embarrassed about being on a date, I was embarrassed that my catheter bag had broken, and I was embarrassed about everything. And, and he wheels me back up there, and the nurses just take me from him and say, come on, we'll sure, we'll see you tomorrow. And they put me in the room, and they said, how was it? And I said, I need pain medicine now. <laughs> and they said, honey, are you in pain? And I said, no, I need sleeping medicine. Maybe that's what I need, sleeping medicine. They changed my clothes. There was nothing about, oh, Janet, we can't believe that happened. It was... I hate it when those things don't work right. Next thing I knew, Miss Joy, the one mom of the four girls, came running down to my room, and she sat by my bed, and she smiled, and she said, Well, did he? I'm thinking, did he what? You see, I wanted to explain to her everything that had happened in the last couple hours, but I was so tired, and, and now I was a little drugged because they had given me something to help me just to go to sleep. And You see... 
she said, I'm going to sit here, Janet, and we're going to talk because we're going to reason why you can't open your heart up to this young man. I said, I've known him 50-some days. She said, but he adores you. Can't you see he adores you? And I said, well, you see, in my book, I was not going to let anybody care for me. I was not love material, if that's what you call it. I didn't know my future. I didn't, I didn't know what I would be capable of doing. I wanted to be a missionary nurse, and I knew that I couldn't do that. And what would I do with my future? And here's a young man that obviously loved me. So Miss Joy reasoned my every excuse. She dared me to open myself up and to let another person into my life. And you see, just as she got up and headed out the door, she stopped at the door and she turned around and she says, you know, there's probably something that you should know by now. I said, what's that? Like, today hasn't been enough. She said, well, Janet Lynn, he knows that you're not a Los Angeles Rams cheerleader. <laughs> cheerleader or not, I did open my life up to love. This June will be Marty's and my 30th wedding anniversary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, it, it was our wedding day that he saw me for the first time walking without my Forrest Gump leg braces. He had never seen me walk before. A man loved me despite my limitations. My dad at my wedding held on to me because this was the first time I was going to be walking. He held on to me like he might never let me go. We walked down to the front of the church, and he made sure that Marty really had his arms around me before he let go. When we got down to the front of the church, the whole congregation stood and applauded. You know, they didn't applaud because, yay, Janet made it down the aisle. They applauded because a God had been uh, so faithful to me, so very faithful. I didn't see he was faithful all that time, but he was faithful. We have three, three kids, and we have a foster child. I'll tell you some things I've learned from our kids. They've taught me that love is patient. Love is kind. Love is supportive. Love is persistent. It's never boastful. It's never proud. It's never irritable. Moms. <laughs> Here's another one. Friends, it keeps no record of wrong. It rejoices, and love is forever. Other people have taught me about love, not just my family. And while I was working on this book, a special kind of love for those that love children with special needs. I interviewed about 90 moms that had kids with special needs. Why I wrote this is because I had Joel, my youngest, was a premature baby, two months. He was on life support when he was born. Jenna became insulin dependent at the same time, and I thought, how do I deal with this? And I need to talk to moms who've made it. I interviewed a lot of moms, and in that interview, I met Nancy Anderson. Nancy is also a speaker, and she was pregnant, and the doctors told her that her baby is incompatible with life. So what should she do? Nancy's mom said some of the most profound words I've ever heard. Because you see, she said, Nancy, you love 
the best you can today. You be the best mom to that baby in utero than you ever can be. Some of us need to be reminded in many situations in our lives that we can love the best we can today. My girlfriend Jane taught me a lot about love, and if you have ever met Jane, you might think that she was Ethel Mertz and I was Lucille Ball. We just have gotten in a lot of trouble together and had a lot of fun together. Jane is also my daughter's godmother and has just been here for our wedding and has helped me every inch of the way. Jane. It was the night of the Rodney King riot. You remember that in L.A.? I happened to be at LAX. Not the best place to be. I was with my husband, and we were waiting for my mother-in-law to fly from Georgia to, to meet with us and to have a vacation. Nothing could have prepared me for that night. We went out there not having a clue what was happening, and while we were there, the riot had erupted, and many of the people went home. The planes weren't landing, and we weren't getting a lot of information, so we didn't know how long we should wait. Well, finally, when we realized that, that we needed to just head home, Marty grabbed my arm, and we began walking through the terminal, and I slipped through some yogurt. There I was, on the ground, holding my leg, saying, Marty, I, I cannot believe that this would have happened. This was my, the, the greatest thing I feared, was falling down and getting hurt. He finally did get me home. You have to read, about, read the book. It's in this book called Taking a Stand. I don't have enough time to share it with all of you today, but we finally did get home from the airport that night, and, and the next day, Marty went to see the doctor next door, brought him over. He looked at my leg, and he shook his head. He said, you better go back to your orthopedic here in California. So we did. He then sent me for an MRI, had the MRI, and in the meantime, I called Dr. Houston in Georgia, and I told him I had fallen, and he said, I'll send you your, your file. So we did. I brought the file, made a copy of it, and took it back to my appointment when I was getting the MRI results, and nothing could have prepared me for what I was about to hear. Dr. Ewald crossed his arms. He handed me, well, before he crossed his arms, he handed me the MRI results, and I said, hey, I have this file for you. He went through it page by page, and then he stopped. He said to me, it's time you know, Janet. He then said, I want to go see my other patients, and I'll come back and see you and talk. And, and he did, and when he came back is when he folded his arms, and he leaned up against the wall, and this was a six-foot, probably two or four man, and he said, it's time that you know that I did not perform the surgery on your right leg, your first surgery. You see, I was teaching Dr. Allgood how to perform the surgery, and, and I told him not to cut there. And I told him not to go so fast, and instead of cutting your, your tibia, because, see, I had to have my leg rotated and then stapled, just like if you broke a leg. He, he said, he didn't cut your bone in a flat plane, Janet. He cut it at an angle, and then we rotated the bone, and the bone collapsed. And he severed every ligament in your leg. I was 32 years old, three little kids at home, and I said, no. I wasn't quite sure what to do. You see, instantly I was angry. And I had been raised in the church. I loved God. But I couldn't quite figure out 
how to turn the anger off, how to take my junior, senior year, and my, my years in college and grab them and take them back and have a different outcome for me. I couldn't do any of that. And I wasn't sure who was going to believe me. I went home and stood there at my parents' front door and fell into their arms and said, this is what the doctor told me. We had some decisions to make as a family, and, and we had some events. Jane and I eventually went back to the doctor's office to get the records and the x-rays we left with the doctor. And the nurse came out and told us, no, she was told that she had to guard my things with her life. And I, I thought, what? We ended up walking out of there. The nurse laid my medical file down on the bench. I picked it up. Jane gave me her jacket, and we walked out and stole the first thing we've ever stole. Didn't know we didn't own our medical records. Jane was a nurse. She started going through and she said, Janet, didn't you say you had three surgeries your senior year? Yeah. Well, it's been removed from the records. I didn't know what to do. You see, Jane and I then did discovery and we found that there were over 50 times my doctors had been sued in Orange alone. Wrongful death, wrong site surgery, intention to cause harm, and I was angry. Angry. It was not my legs that was crippling me. It was my anger that was crippling me. See, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know what to do with it. And you know what Jane said to me? She said something very profound. She said, I want to encourage you, Janet, to feel every feeling that you're feeling, not to hide them. Because, you see, God created your feelings. And if you, if you feel anger, then you must need anger. That God's going to use that anger for something. I went and counseled with Norm Wright. And he said, yes, you're right, Janet, that God has given you all your emotions. But he also challenged me about forgiveness. And I thought, I, how do you do that? No one said they were sorry to me. No one's said that they're going to make it better. It can't be better. Norm said, Janet, do you remember Jesus on the cross? He was like this. He was there for your sins and my sins. Nobody said they were sorry. Nobody helped him down. Nobody stopped the pain he was in because Jesus said, I need to do this because I love the people in the world. But what did Jesus do? He spoke words. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And I finally realized that forgiveness is, is, is not an emotion. It's a choice. And I finally said, okay, God, I don't feel it. I'm not excited about it, but I want to be obedient to you more than I want anything in my life. So I'm going to speak these words out of my mouth. And God began to do a work of change in my heart. You see, God also used my friend Jane. Because, you see, Jane said to me, Janet, I'm going to hang a red cord for you. You remember the story of Rahab? She said, Janet, I'm going to hang a red cord. And I'm going to trust. I'm going to have faith that God is going to show up for you. He's going to do something for you. And when you're doubting, I'm hanging my cord, and I'm going to show you the cord. I'm going to promise you that God will be faithful. One day, Jane came over, and she brought me a rock looks kind of like this. On one side, she had on it, I'm praying for you. And on the other side, she said, let God be your rock. 
And she said, this is about the only thing I know to give you, Janet, because you need to, be, you need to remember that God's going to be faithful. Through depression, through forgiveness, through our private detective investigations that there were many, through discovering that so many people had been injured to testifying in state, appellate, and federal courts, Jane stood by me. When some people said, Janet, come on, get over it. I want you, I want you back now to be our normal person that we already know. Jane, let God heal me in his time. And some people said to me, Christians don't sue Janet. And Jane knew every detail. She knew the people that had been injured. And she knew that I had to. For some of you that do read this book, I want to share one thing. I, I write about another patient in here that was also injured that I had found. And he had actually died, and his wife got an anonymous phone call 18 months later that her husband died at the hands of her doctor. I went, included this man in my book, and finally went and met the daughter and the, the wife when the book came out. The wife says to me, Janet, did you know my husband was a pastor? wouldn't have mattered. He's Jamie's dad. Jamie's now my Facebook friend. He's really angry at God. And I understand. God will use those things in your life. The things that you're dreading, he will use. And he will use them for good and for his glory. Jane and I passed the rock back since 19... Um, 92, 91. When one of us needed it, it was there. Right now, the rock is with Jane in, in Arizona. Jane had the rock in her pocket when she testified. I had the rock in my pocket as I stood before the Congress of California. And a law was signed in, um, a bill was signed into law that stemmed from my case changing the future of the people in California. You see, through my time, Jane has been there for me. She gave me a rock. She gave me a cord. You all have red rocks on your tables today in a little bag. I challenge you to use those rocks for something. I challenge you to take them home, to set them somewhere, to remember that God loves you so deeply. I challenge you to, to sit and look at that and remember that you can be an other in someone's life, that you can show them love. Or I challenge you to give that rock to someone who is hurting and explain to them how you're using the rock. I have a couple more stories I want to share with you. How I got through my time, I developed a flip book. This is my flip book from my crisis, I call it. And basically, I just started writing down in here quotes and scripture from people who had suffered in the past or people that had understood God in a way that I needed to understand. And one of the first quotes I put in here was by Corey Tim Boom, where Corey says, it's easy to be guided by a God who doesn't make mistakes. Here I had been told I had these surgical mistakes, and now Corey Tim Boom, who, by the way, was, was not with us. She had gone to be with the Lord by this point, is telling me, that I can be okay, that I am being guided by a God who doesn't allow mistakes in my life. So actually, this problem wasn't a mistake. Well, so I figured I needed to find out a little about Corey, and, and, and 
what I found out was really interesting. She was born in 19, 1892 into a Christian family in, Nether, in the Netherlands. When she was 48 years old is when World War II happened. And actually, um, Holland was taken over by the Nazis. And when Holland was taken over, Corey and her family, her father and, and Betsy, decided that they would create a wall in Corey's room and that they would hide Jewish people behind the wall that needed to escape. Now, I know many girls won't even give up half their bedroom to a foster child, but now they took out their bedroom and started hiding people behind the walls. And, you know, Corey and her family say that this was their greatest honor to hide the Jewish people. Needed to learn more about Corey, so I did. And I read her book, um, A Tramp for the Lord. Anyone in here have read it? If you get a chance to pick up Corey's book, it's an excellent book. And I learned a lot about her life then. Eventually, the Timboom family was found out, and they went to prison. Mr. Timboom died 10 days after he went to prison. But Corey and Betsy went to a variety of concentration camps. They went to Ravensbrück concentration camp, and a quote they say that their time spent in Ravensbrück was their finest hour. That didn't set with me. I decided to Google Ravensbrück and look up. And you know what I found out? Out of Ravensbrück, there was 140,000 women and children that went through that concentration camp. And only 40,000 survived. And Corey says, that's our greatest hour. Do you know why? Because those people needed to hear the good news that Jesus loved them. They needed to hear that this isn't it, that there is eternal life and there is life after this. What a greater group to talk to than people that are heading there soon. That was their finest hour. She describes in her book, A Tramp for the Lord, how she struggled to forgive the guards that harmed them. She, she talks about all the ways God took care of her. And you know what? I'm thinking today that there might be some of you here that feel like you're in your own prison, whether it's a prison of your past or prison of your pain. But I want to share with you that your prison can become your finest hour and that God can use that. Corey Timboom says this, it was while I was in prison that I risked my life because I carried a small Bible. How in the world do you think she got that Bible naked as a jaybird walking past the guards by inspection? That Bible was hidden by our Father God. Corey says it was while in prison she began to thank God for fleas. Why would she thank God for fleas? Because the, the, the guards wouldn't come in her room. And then if they didn't come in her room, that she could have Bible studies. And she could wear, share with woman after woman that God loves you. And he has a, a plan for your life. And he had his son die for you so that you could understand his love. It was while in prison that Betsy died. Wow. And Corey's response to Betsy's death was, I don't want the women here to be discouraged. Now, I know if I lost my sister, um, I would be heartbroken. And I imagine Corey was some, but she says, I don't want the, the women here to be discouraged because Corey knew that this world is not our home, that there is another place and that we can go there. It's because Corey was in the pit that I think we can believe her when, when we hear her say this. Remember, God has no problems for your life, only plans. 
We can't be afraid to trust our unknown future to a known God. Any concern too small to be turned into prayer is too small to be a burden. Corey says that we are the glove. And it's when the Holy Spirit fills the glove then we see him doing wonderful works in our life. She says that forgiveness is not an act of the will. It's, it can function regardless of how we're feeling. Corey says that faith sees the invisible, believes the unbelievable, and receives the impossible. Two quick stories to share with you. One of the greatest things that I remember about learning about love the last few years is at a trip to Mervyn's. It was Christmas time, and I, I knew I had to get things done. I knew I was on a timeline, and I went and grabbed my number at the jewelry counter, and there I stood. And I stood waiting. There was one gal working behind the counter. She had her hair pulled back in a bun. She was definitely pregnant, and I think going to be delivering any moment, actually. She had a man's shirt on. It was buttoned tight. It was strained across the middle. And as I began to watch her, I realized that she didn't adorn any jewelry. And there was no mascara, no lipstick, no earrings. And I kind of even wondered, how did they let her work at Mervyn's, especially at Christmas time? And there was one gentleman ahead of me. And he had been there probably by 10, 15 minutes now, and he stood at the counter. And I heard him say to her, I want to find something lovely for my wife. I thought, well, sir, I can help you. <laughs> I think everybody in line could help you. And the woman was so gracious. She showed him ring after ring and bracelet after bracelet. And she said, look at this ruby ring. I think your wife would like a ruby ring. Well, my, my, my wife is 80. I don't know where she would wear a ruby ring. So then we went to the bracelets. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, it's now almost a half an hour I've waited. And I am just about to call a manager. How many would be with me? <laughs> oh, God is dealing with me. <laughs> I didn't, but oh, I was just about ready. And all of a sudden, he said to her, I'll take this bracelet and I'll take the ring. And she walked over and she wrapped them up, put them in the bag, and handed it to the man. And the man said to her, you've been delightful, thank you. And I thought, well, good, it's my turn. Then the man did something I didn't expect. He took the things out of the bag and opened them up and looked at both of them. And I'm thinking, sir, is there something wrong? Can I help you? And then he said to the gal behind the, the cash register, by the cash register, could I have your hand? And he placed the red ruby ring on this young girl's finger. And he says, I want to thank you for helping me find the perfect Christmas present for my mother, or for my, for my wife. And then he put the other thing in the bag and he hobbled away and I've never seen anything quite like that the girl just burst into tears the man walked away and I said I'm next and she says to me she says to me you can't I can't keep this ring and she and I said you're gonna keep that ring I have seen this whole thing and she said well I really can't what will happen with Mervyn's I'll take it outside I'll hand you the ring you're gonna keep this ring I then talked to the gal and I said when's your baby due she said any day I said, well, what are you doing here at work? She said, I have to work. I support myself. The baby doesn't have a daddy. 
And this man is the first time anyone's told me that I was beautiful. Gals, it took half an hour of my time for a stranger to reach into the life of a gal who was really hurting. I think that's what God does to us. I think in many ways he finds ways to reach down into our lives to tell us that he loves us. Some of us aren't even listening. A year ago, I was speaking at Granada Hills Presbyterian Church. After I was done, there was a group of women that wanted to chat with me. There were three women up front, and they said, we want to know, we want to tell you that, that Cory Boom spoke right from the same place you spoke. We saw her in person, and I was so excited. I love Cory. I, I take flowers to Cory's grave. She's taught me a lot. Of, she was a, a dead woman who spoke to me about love. Because in many ways, the things she believes live on. Granada Hills, the next gal that came up to me, she held out her hand. And in front of my mom and I, she said, I worked at Mervyn's, and I have a red ruby ring. Gals, what would have happened? If I had called the manager and got her in trouble for being so helpful to an older gentleman that really needed some help. And yet this woman had now moved on with her life and found herself at a tea for Christian women. I challenge you to be love on your street. To be loved to the cable man. To watch your actions. I, whether you go out, I bought a princess crown to put on my neck so I can remember to behave. <laughs> you laugh. My family laughs. But you know, I, I'm on a time schedule. You know the time schedule I need to be on is that Jesus is coming back and we need to take our friends with us. Jesus is coming back, and we don't have much time to, be, to tell your neighbor, to tell the cable man, to tell the postman. I heard a, a very alarming statistic this week that, only, that, that people believe Christians, 10% of the time, they believe that we're real. Why? I want them to believe 90% of the time we're real because of our actions, because we're focused. All I learned about love, I've learned from others, and I think we don't have much time to be another in the world. I'm going to share one more story with you, and I'm going to ask that you close your eyes for this one. Now, my daughter Jenna, I told you, just got married to a wonderful young man that's been serving in the Gulf, and it's been an exciting month. But the story I'm going to share with you is about her birth. And Jenna knows that I'm here today, and she knows that I'm sharing this story of her birth. And it is Jenna's prayer and my prayer that through her story that you may be able to understand how deeply God cares for you. I want you to join me with your eyes closed. I stood in awe, and I watched her faith being lived out. What brought her to this moment had faded, and now she concentrated on the task before her. 
As her, as her contractions progressed, I dried her forehead from the sweat of labor. I held her hand as she grasped mine. One moment we laughed, and the next I counted her tears. You see, today we both knew that our lives would for forever change. Hours passed, and her contractions intensified. I said, you're doing a great job. I encouraged her when her pain reached the threshold. Soon the doctor arrived, and we were whisked out to the delivery room, and I took a seat by her head, and I continued to coach her. The room was cold, yet it was warm by the miracle that was just about to take place. My heart pounded as, as, I, as I listened to the piercing sounds of labor. I brushed her hair away from her face, and I admired the inner strength of this young woman. One final push, and Jenna Marie was born. We held hands as the doctor cut the cord, separating mother and child. The room was silent except for the sounds of a newborn's cry. My heart raced as I watched this nurse carefully bundle the baby. In seconds, she placed the newborn in my arms. You see, in my arms because the young woman who had given birth had chosen me to become the mother of her child. She, the baby, Jenna Marie, was beautiful. I couldn't speak. I was lost for words. I, I cradled her for the first time. I glanced at her birth mother from the corner of my eyes. Her eyes caught mine, and they locked. We spoke volumes, looking into each other's eyes, but we didn't say a word. She smiled at me through her tears, and I began to to bond with my priceless gift. With a quiver, I assured her, I nodded, and I assured her of my sanctioned vows to motherhood. She reached over and ran her fingers along Jenna's cheeks. She's beautiful, were her words. Soon the nurse looked at me and said, Janet, it's time to go. And I stood and I brought Jenna Marie to, to the lips of her birth mother. I watched as tenderly and with great love, she kissed the precious infant goodbye. My voice trembled as I tried to find words of thanks. Walking to the newborn nursery, my, I gasped at my own thoughts. You see, I had stopped by, I picked up my husband, and all of a sudden, in, in slow motion across my mind, I, I could see it. I, I could picture God's arms and how he reacted the moment Jesus was born. I pictured God's arms holding his son. I imagined him touching, cradling him within his bosom. Perhaps tears formed in God's eyes, I wondered, as he conceived the provision, the plan that he had created for the redemption of my sins. And I wondered, too, if God lifted baby Jesus to his lips and gave him the final kiss goodbye as he laid Jesus in Mary's arms. I cried as I could not find words to express my thanks to my Father God. You see, before this day, I had never comprehended such an act of love. I, I saw faith and action in the life of a young woman. I saw courage despite fear. And for the first time in my life, I understood how deeply God loved me. You see, for he too had given up a child. 
And he gave that child up for me and for you. It was on the way to the newborn nursery that I finally understood the incredible kind of love, a love that gives beyond comprehension, a love that gives in spite of pain. It's an incredible kind of love that gave me the gift of love and the gift of eternal life. Some of you here today might be just hearing about this kind of love. Some of you may be thinking, you know, I think that, that God does love me. Some of you may be thinking, I'm not sure he loves me, but I, I believe he brought his son to pay for my sins. You see, God loves you so much that he gave his son up so that his son could pay the penalty of your sins of yesterday and your sins of tomorrow and my sins. It's called the greatest act of love we can ever imagine. You see, all God asks us to do is to open our arms. Just like when I adopted Jenna and when they were gonna, the nurse was going to put Jenna in my arms for the first time, I had to say yes. I had to hold my arms out. If you're ready to hold your arms out and you're ready to say yes, Jesus, I ask that you would say this prayer silently. Dear God, today I realize how much you love me. You love me so much that you sent your precious son to die for my sins. Jesus, I acknowledge that you are God's son. I thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. And I joyfully receive your gift of eternal life. I place my trust in you. Amen. Ladies, for those of you who have said yes to Jesus, you may not understand all. I still don't understand all. But I know that this is the way we say yes. Or this is the way we say yes. And if you've said that prayer, or if you're going to say it again in five minutes, or if you haven't said it and you want to say it, come talk to me. But if you have said it, I do want you to come talk to me. You know why? Because I want to give you a hug. You are now my sister in Christ. I want to give you a hug. For those of you who have heard this message and say, well, I need to find out more about that, I encourage you to come talk to some of the women of the church. Find out about it. But don't let another year go by without saying, I need to find out about who this Jesus is. All I learned about love in all of my research I've learned from others. I've learned that love takes a week looking for a dog. I've learned that love listens to my dreams, laughs at my jokes, and covers my life in prayer. Love leaves words engraved upon my heart. Love learned to play the flute. Love comes to my rescue even when he has seen it all even when. Love takes risk, it dreams dreams, and it shoots for the stars, and it believes when others can't. It sees beyond limitations. It reasons our every excuse. It holds on tight and knows the right time to let go. It's forever. It tells us that there is nothing so deep that he is not deeper still. It tells others that they're beautiful. It gives an half an hour, an hour of their time 
for someone to reach into the life of another. Love is not selfish. It gives life. Love. Love was sent to this earth to die on a cross for us. Now I challenge you to go today and be an other to our world. Thank you. i mm-hmm.
Wow, that was wonderful. Thank you. You all been so blessed today. I have been so blessed today, and I am just want to um, just give a round of applause for our how hard that our deaconesses work to put this together for us. We can really <laughs>